Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 367th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I'm brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. And a very fine good morning to you, Chuck, and everybody else. This morning, our lead story is about the proposed rule for the 2020 inpatient perspective payment system. CMS posted that update last Tuesday, as you recall. Now, the proposal is sent shockwaves through the coding and CDI worlds. I know that you, Erica, you've been analyzing the proposed rule, and you're going to be discussing your analysis later in the broadcast, but uh, give us just a little hint about what you're going to be talking about. It actually bumped my uh, original. I was going to go over the coding clinic changes for uh, quarter one, which I had to bump to next week. Um, uh, This week, I'm going to be sharing the proposed changes to the CCMCC list. There are 1,492 of them, and I'm going to tell you what I think it means to our listeners. Well, I read your story this morning in the ICD-10 Monitor e-news, and you say that comment page on the proposed rule says that the deadline for submitting comments is May 3rd, but the rule itself says it's June 24th, so I know there's a little confusion there. But you also point out that these changes, if they go through, could really have some financial impact on some of these institutions. And you say, don't let that happen. It's time to fight. That's right, and I'm going to try to go over what I think the implications are and uh, make sure that everybody gets riled up enough to do a comment. Thanks, Erica. Joining us also on that topic is going to be Lori Johnson. She's going to be reporting on some of the coding issues found in the proposal. Also, Stanley Nockerson is going to provide context and perspective on the proposal rule. As many of you might remember, Stanley was once a career professional with CMS. And today, he's a recognized healthcare IT authority and our good friend on Talk 10 Tuesdays. And speaking of authorities, Rose Dunn is here. She's a nationally recognized HIM authority. She's going to be returning to the broadcast to continue her series on the revenue cycle. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is brought to you by ICD University, inviting you to subscribe to the 2019 ICD 10 Educational Webcast Series. To sign up, click on the handout tab in today's broadcast. Here now is Tim Powell. Hey, Chuck, and as you mentioned, CMS has released its 2020 proposed rule. I'm going to be talking about the reimbursement issues at a macro level. While CMS projects an increase of total IPPS payments of 3.7%, there are winners and losers. So who are the winners? Winners are disproportionate share hospitals, hospitals meeting meaningful use EHR requirements submitting quality data, hospitals with high levels of uncompensated care, hospitals providing new technology services, hospitals with wage indexes below the 25th percentile, and companies providing high-technology therapies, including Gilead Sciences and Novartis. The losers include hospitals with wage indexes over 75, the 75th percentile, can you say California, non-DISH hospitals, and urban hospitals in areas where the wage index was increased based on the state's rural floor. EHR and quality data submitters. Under the proposed rules, acute care hospitals that report quality data and are meaningful use users of EHRs will receive a 3.2 percentage increase. In this light, we are sure that many providers are watching the ongoing investigations of community health systems, CHS, where whistleblowers allege that CHS 
CHS provided falsified data in conjunction with its vendor, Medhost. In light of this investigation, we think it is prudent for all of our providers claiming meaningful use status to review their submission data and discuss processes with their EHR vendor. Uh, disproportionate share payments, CMS proposes an increase to disproportionate, disproportionate share payments to hospitals of around $216 million to roughly $8.5 billion in fiscal 2020. CART therapy payment update. Under the proposed rule, CMS, uh, the maximum add-on payment for new technology, including CART cancer therapy, is going up from 50% estimated cost to 65%. CMS said that the two CART therapies on the market, Gilead Sciences, Yaskarta, and Novartis AG's Kimria, have price tags of around $373,000. Under the proposed rule, the maximum add-on payment would increase from $186,500 to $242,450. Wage index changes. The proposed rule includes several changes to the inpatient hospital wage index. Under the proposal, hospitals with wage index values below the 25th percentile would see an increase, while hospitals with wage index values above the 75th percentile would see a decrease. The rule would also cap decreases at 5% for fiscal 2020. CMS is also proposing changes to the rural floor calculation, which requires that the wage index values for urban hospitals be no lower than the wage index values for rural hospitals in the same state. According to CMS, and quoting them in their recent fact sheet, it appears that hospitals in a limited number of states have used urban to rural hospital reef classifications to inappropriately influence the rural floor wage index value. To address this, CMS goes on, CMS proposes removing urban to rural hospital reclassifications from the calculation to the rural floor wage index beginning in 2020. The most famous of these cases occurred in the states of Connecticut and Massachusetts. The facts of these smaller state factors into how it worked. If you look at a rural hospital with a low wage index data, you request that this hospital be redesignated to an urban area. By making the redesignation to raise the statewide rural floor and increase all urban hospitals, including a recently redesignated hospital to the new rural floor. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday, it's April 30th, 2019, and you're listening to the 367th edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. An aversion to claim denials and auditor action has caused many hospitals to avoid diagnosing encephalopathy. That means they're leaving money on the table. This aversion stems largely from confusion regarding the various types of encephalopathy. Compounding matters, other conditions may be mistakenly identified as encephalopathy. But here's good news. In an upcoming webcast, Dr. Erica Reamer will give you a clearer understanding of encephalopathy and its many forms and etiologies. With this improved understanding, you and your providers will be able to accurately document each patient's severity and complexity, leading to optimized coding and risk adjustment. Plan to attend encephalopathy. Overcome the confusion. Reduce your risks. It's Thursday, May 9th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now by clicking on the handout tab in today's broadcast. Thanks, Clark. And a reminder, you can save 30 bucks when you're registered to attend Dr. Reamer's webcast. All you have to do is enter the coupon code TUESDAY. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. 
The proposed rule contains the release of new diagnosis and procedure codes. If you need the URL to locate proposed rule, see under the handout tab the Laurie Johnson handout. For ICD-10-CM, Table 6A lists the new diagnosis codes. In Chapter 3, which is the diseases of the blood and blood-forming organs, which is the D codes, um, there are five new codes that cover the um, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency without anemia and adenosine deaminase deficiency. In Chapter 8, which are the H codes, which are the diseases of ear and mastoid process, there is one code which covers the vertigo of central origin. In Chapter 9, the I codes, diseases of the circulatory system, the new codes, which there are 30, cover single or multiple sub-segmental pulmonary embolus without core pulmonale, expansion of atrial fibrillation codes, phlebitis and thrombophlebitis of various lower extremity veins, and acute embolism and thrombosis of various lower extremity veins, and chronic embolism and thrombosis of lower extremity veins. In Chapter 12, the L codes had 25 new changes, or I should say additions. Um, they've added an additional level of pressure ulcers, which are indicated by a 6 in the 6 character, which represents pressure-induced deep tissue damage of various anatomical sites. And I would urge you to reach out to your wound care nurses so that they're aware of this change so they can begin the documentation process and be in the swing of things by October 1st. In Chapter 14, which is Diseases of the Genitourinary System, the N codes, they have added three new codes, which cover unspecified lump in the breast with overlapping quadrants and post-endometrial ablation syndrome. Chapter 17, the Q codes, the congenital malformation, deformation, and chromosomal abnormalities, there's 31 new codes, which cover congenital deformities of the foot, it expands the Ehlers-Danos syndrome, and specific. there's now a specific code for Prader-Willi syndrome, congenital malformations associated with short stature is also another code. Chapter 18, the R codes, which cover symptoms, signs, and abnormal clinical laboratory findings. The additions are cyclical vomiting unrelated to migraine, pyuria, and other abnormal findings in the exam of the urine. Chapter 19 is the S&T codes, injury and poisoning, cover fracture of the orbit, and there's various codes for that, poisoning of multiple unspecified drugs, and heat stroke. Chapter 20, external causes of morbidity, the V, W, X, and Y codes cover, there's 74 new codes that cover legal intervention involving firearms, explosives, gases, and other objects. In Chapter 21, the Z codes cover for the factors influencing healthcare status, there's 13 new codes. Um, that cover encounter for ex eye exam following a failed vision screening, latent tuberculosis, personal history of in-situ neoplasm or melanoma, and the presence of a neurostimulator. 
I'm not going to have time to review the procedure changes, but they are in Table 6B. And I would encourage everyone that has an opinion about proposed rule that the Open Door Forum for Hospitals is today at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, and you can dial in at 1-800-837-1935, and the ID number is 137 3188, and that line opens 15 minutes prior to um, 2 o'clock. So lots happening in proposed role, Erica, and I'll turn it back to you. I have to say, it's really fun to see the codes from the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meetings come to fruition. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Laurie Johnson, thank you very much. And you can read Laurie's reporting on the IPS proposed rule in today's edition of the IC10 Monitor News. Now's the time for Reg Watch featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Knoxon. So, Stanley, good morning. Everybody seems to be talking about last week's CMS posting of the 2020 proposed IPS rule, but Stanley, there are other proposed rules that CMS has floated out there as well. CMS has been quite busy this last few weeks issuing the proposed payment rules for 2020 and making some other announcements. Our panelists today are providing details on the hospital inpatient uh, care rule, so I'll provide some information about other activities of interest. On April 22nd, CMS announced the Primary Cares Initiative, which will present eligible providers and other entities with the opportunity to engage in value-based payment and direct contracting payment models for primary care beginning in January 2020. There are two tracks. The first track, which is intended for individual primary care practices, which seeks to reward providers for reductions in hospital utilization and total cost of care through performance-based payment adjustments. Also, practices that specialize in serving high-need and or seriously ill populations will receive adjusted payments to account for the populations they serve. Providers that participate in these models will qualify as participating in an advanced alternative payment model and will be eligible to receive full bonus payments under CMS's Medicare Incentive Payment System, which means a bonus of 5% of prior year Part B payments. Now, the direct contracting track is intended for a broader set of stakeholders with experience accepting financial risk and serving larger patient populations. Medicare Advantage plans can also apply for direct contracting, but details are still forthcoming. Entities interested in pursuing direct contract can choose from one of three models for professional services only, for global services, or for geographic areas, and the form of the capitated payment they receive will depend on the model they select. On April 19th, CMS published a proposed rule on FY 2020 hospice payments. This rule rebases the per diem payments for hospices to better align them with the actual cost of care. CMS is also proposing to modify the existing hospice election statement content requirements to increase coverage transparency for patients that choose to elect hospice. Hospices will be required to provide upon request a statement addendum with a list and rationale for items, drugs, and services that the hospice has determined to be unrelated to the terminal illness and related conditions to the beneficiary uh, or their representative, other providers that are treating such conditions, and to Medicare contractors. Having this information and education will empower patients to make an informed decision when deciding to elect 
the hospice benefit. Also on April 19th, CMS issued the proposed rule for fiscal year 2020 that updates the rates and quality programs for skilled nursing facilities. CMS is continuing its efforts to move from volume to value-based purchasing in all provider types. The new patient-driven payment model, effective October 1, 2019, under the SNF prospective payment system, will be classifying payments patients in a covered Medicare Part A SNF stay. This model utilizes ICD-10 codes to classify SNF patients into certain payment groups. This, of course, makes complete and accurate ICD-10 coding for SNF patients even more critical. CMS is also proposing to adopt two new quality measures in fiscal year 2020 to assess how health information is shared by skilled nursing facilities. The two proposed measures are the transfer of health information from the SNF to another provider and the transfer of health information from the SNF to the patient. On April 18th, CMS issued a proposed rule updating Medicare payment policies and rates for inpatient psychiatric facilities and also updating the inpatient psychiatric facility quality reporting program for fiscal year 2020. CMS estimates that total IPF payments will increase by 1.7% or approximately 75 million in fiscal year 20. For fiscal year 20, CMS is proposing to rebase and revise the IPF market basket to reflect a new base year and CMS is proposing to adopt one new claims-based measure beginning with the fiscal year 2020 payment determination and subsequent years. Now, comment period on these proposed rules are 60 days from the date of publication, so comments on each of the rules are due in the latter part of June. Thank you very much, and Erica, back to you. Thank you, Stanley. That was quite a lot of information. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockhamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockhamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you, Stanley, very much for an excellent report. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, Rose Dunn is here today. Rose is a nationally recognized HIM authority, and Rose continues her series on the revenue cycle and how HIM can play a role in other areas of the revenue cycle. Good morning, Rose. Thanks, Chuck. Well, as we continue the segment on HIM and the revenue cycle, I'd like to share some thoughts I discussed at the recent Missouri State Meeting. When we think about the functions that compose the revenue cycle, we are already involved in each of them. Oftentimes, we provide the data to develop the grid for procedure prices that are used by the pre-reg and financial counseling teams to share with self-paying patients. We assess the pre-admission testing and the results to determine if the testing is related to the inpatient care. We work with access to cleanse the demographic data Case management uses our working DRG in some cases, and we help both the internal and external case managers to obtain some of the clinical information needed to support the status. And, of course, we're connected at the hip with PFS to ensure that coding is consistent with the charges and that CDM-driven charges are consistent with the coding and the documentation and the record. Well, to demonstrate our skill sets in the revenue cycle, we can do several activities that are compatible with our role. Today, I will touch on one. Let's monitor demographic accuracy for one month. Let's check the spelling of the patient's names and the formatting of the patient's names, especially when there are juniors, seniors, firsts, seconds, and nuns involved. Okay. You may be saying, I get the junior-senior thing, Rose, but what about nuns? 
Yeah, often their first name is Mary, but it may appear abbreviated one time and Mary the next. Then there is the sister piece. Sometimes registrars just don't know where to put the sister prefix in the name. Providing education on titles such as sister, doctor, reverend, etc. will be beneficial for that team. And then tackle spelling of streets, towns, and zip codes too. These often will surface in your state data submission error report. Finally, there is the infamous duplicate numbers. We all know about them. Other audits can be considered too, and we can chat about those in a future segment. HIM has other skills that are ideally aligned with managing the revenue cycle, including logistics experience, clinical understanding, and coding knowledge. We strive for coding and revenue integrity, and we recognize the difference between charges and reimbursement. We have data analysis skills, and we know how to read and apply regulations. Finally, though, we can fight. We're a feisty bunch. And no one can fight a coding denial better than we can. So that brings us to our last topic today. What are the characteristics of a good appeal letter? Number one, timeliness. It's important to respond to a denial promptly, but not so quickly that we don't give a solid argument. Provide concrete proof that you are entitled to the payment based on the coding you submitted and supported by the clinical documentation. Give a detailed account of the treatment provided for the patient and cross-reference to the copy of the medical record you attach. Involve the clinician, if necessary, to augment your appeal content. Cite relevant national coding guidelines, professional jury-journaled articles, and materials from recognized coding authorities and medical societies. Recognize that the goals for the payers are different than those of the providers. If the payer continues to deny the case and you believe your position is valid, escalate the appeal. Finally, when it's all said and done, ensure your claim system and the payer's claim system reflects the final set of agreed-upon codes for data integrity and patient profile purposes. Well, that's it for today. Done is done. Back to you, Dr. Reamer. Thanks, Rose. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is the Chief Operations Officer for First Class Solutions and a past president of AHIMA. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Rose, thanks very, very much. You can read Rose reporting on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICT-10 Monitor News. Now's the time for our popular segment here on Talk 10 Tuesday, and that's called Talk Back, and it features Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, Dr. Reamer provides an important analysis of the 2020 IFS proposed rule. Erica, please take it away. Okay, listeners, we need to mobilize and give CMS our feedback. Remember a few weeks ago, I told you the original DRG system defined substantial complications or comorbidities as conditions which, because of their presence with a specific principal diagnosis, would cause an increase in the length of stay by at least one day in at least 75% of patients, and that the CC system was revised in 2008 to be the CC-MCC system that we recognize currently. Well, the inpatient prospective payment system reviews and revises the CC-MCC list yearly, and they just came out with a proposed drastic overhaul. They claim that the categorization of diagnoses as an MCC, a CC, or non-CC is accomplished using an iterative approach in which each diagnosis is evaluated to determine the extent to which its presence as a secondary diagnosis results in increased hospital resource use. In this proposed rule, 
They stated, in light of the transition to ICD-10-CM and the significant changes that have occurred to diagnosis code since this review, they believe it is necessary to conduct a comprehensive analysis once again. Only Eddie Hugh really understands the methodology, but it is some variation unobserved to expected, and they decided that 1492, that's 1,492 ICD-10-CM diagnoses need to have their severity level designation adjusted. And you would be completely right if you surmised that some of these changes will not be favorable to MSDRG risk adjustment. 191 were upgrades by one level. That's HCCs to MCCs and 183 non-CCs to CCs. 136 MCCs were downgraded to CCs and 1,165 conditions went from MCC or CC to non-CCs. I have some objections to the methodology as I understand it, and I do not understand it as well as Eddie Hugh. First, expected is always suspect to me. I have never done an assessment of documentation and coding where I found no opportunity. When the bucket of non-CC is tainted with undocumented, uncaptured CC and MCC conditions, benchmarking has to be taken with a grain of salt. Next, resource utilization is not strictly additive. If a patient has three MCCs, the charges are not necessarily going to be proportionally incrementally increased with each MCC. But that doesn't mean that if any of those conditions were standing by themselves, they wouldn't be MCC-worthy alone. If you read my article, you will see that I found several glaring errors in the explanation of their determinations. I suspect by the time you look at the published IPPS, they will have fixed the errors because yesterday they emailed Ron Hirsch during his um, uh, Monitor Mondays and said that they, were, they did indeed make a mistake and they were going to fix it. So in that table, they had flipped columns, and then they tried to explain why they were going against their data. So these errors kind of render the entire methodology suspicious to me. My final objections were clinically based. Cardiac arrest in a patient who survives to discharge is a non-CC. It's already excluded if the patient expires. Seems like you might use some resources in a resuscitation. Severe protein calorie malnutrition downgraded to a CC but moderate is made an MCC. Why would type 2 diabetes, hyperosmolar non-ketotic state without coma, be neither a CC nor an MCC when many of the other serious and not as serious complications of diabetes are MCCs or CCs? Consistency, please. In fact, I found most of the MCC downgrades dubious. If you want to downgrade end-stage renal disease, then make dialysis dependence the MCC. There is some serious resource consumption there. Acute blood loss anemia requiring transfusion, at very least, should remain a CC. It's hard to believe that transplant and cancer patients do not utilize more resources than the average patient, even with nary a complication. I did agree with many of the newly christened CCs, however. Acute bronchospasm, fecal impaction, all pressure ulcers, and post-procedural fever. Aspiration events drug resistance, and homelessness are newly proposed CCs. I have already submitted my comments. 
I felt compelled to get it done quickly. Feel free to refer to my article when you craft your own comments, but read the rule for yourself and get it done soon. The deadline in the proposed rule is going to be June 24th at 11.59 p.m. You know I care about accuracy and integrity. I believe the integrity of the system is endangered when they downgrade serious conditions which pose risk to the patient and consume significant resources. Without knowing what DRG's patient will fall into the future and what comorbidities they will have, how can you know that it would all come out in the wash? At very least, budget neutral means there are definite winners and losers. If we don't bond together and protest these proposed changes, I predict there will be serious, possibly catastrophic negative changes to some of your bottom lines. In the words of Lin-Manuel Miranda, rise up. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. And you can read Erica's excellent reporting on the 2020 proposed tips changes in our newsletter today. That's going to be a wrap for our 367th edition, Tucked in Tuesday. And, Erica, I want to thank our panelists today, Rose Dunn, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Stanley Knox, and, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. And you can listen to us no matter where you are, anytime, anyplace. It's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another edition of Tucked in Tuesday. Until then. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday, and I see D10 Monitor. Thank you for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.